Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I am one of your hosts, Michael Fling, here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I am so pleased to be joined by the starshine of my eye, Annika Chapin, <laughs> Goodspeed Musicals resident dramaturg and artistic associate. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. I love that. I would just like to also note that I am actually in Aquarius, so. The dawning, you you are dawning. It's my age, or rather it was in 1967, I guess. <laughs> so before we dive into the show, a couple housekeeping things. So we will be releasing an episode in two weeks, which will be our season one finale. We'll give you a nice clue about what that sh- what show we'll be diving into for that episode. And also we're uh, so excited that we have an official Goodspeed email for the podcast. So if you have any thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, prayers, you'd like to send our way, uh, we may do a special holiday mailbag type episode or something if we get some good responses. So feel free to email us your questions or thoughts on season one at podcast at goodspeed.org. Pretty easy to remember, I think. Um, so yeah, feel free to shoot us some questions and maybe we'll answer some on the next episode. And there's always our socials too. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, in the spot pod for most of them. So with that, Annika, why don't you remind us the clue you gave us about what show we'll be putting in the spotlight this episode? The clue that I gave was that this show was the first time an African-American actress took over a role originally played by a white performer without it being a new all-black cast like they would do with Hello, Dolly! and some of those shows. And the actresses were Melba Moore, who took over the role of Sheila from Lynn Kellogg, in Hair, the American tribal love rock musical. With book and lyrics by Jerome Ragney and James Rado and music by Galt McDermott. So with that, that'll bring us to the speed test. Where I will do my best to summarize Hair, uh, or the plot that does exist in Hair, uh, in 60 seconds. Feeling bullish on my ability to do this one, but again, we all know how my predictions tend to go with this segment. All right, I have a minute on the clock. Flow it, show it long as God can grow it, plot. So we have a lot of hippies. It's the 60s. So many hippies. I can barely remember any of their names, but yes, they are all individuals. So we have Claude, who's basically our protagonist. He, uh, you know, in the story, basically he gets his, the overall story is he gets his draft card to go to the Vietnam War. Um, and he debates whether or not he's going to burn the draft card like all his other hippie friends. Uh, who are like Berger, who has, who is with Sheila, even though he doesn't really like Sheila, but Claude likes Sheila. And then he also, you know, Berger kind of has a thing for Claude, frankly. Anyway, um, so he just debates whether or not he's going to burn the draft card. Uh, and then he ends up not burning it, going to war. And that's kind of where the show ends. But it's basically them and the hippie friends the and for an hour just live in their not an hour but the show like live in their hippie bliss perfect that's right on time you nailed it lots of commentary about society and you know drugs sex rock and roll it's all there (laughs) nudity no nudity we'll get there Mm mm-hmm Okay, and that will bring us to Why God Why. Why God 
today. Where we talk about the big idea of the show. What's its governing purpose? Why are the authors telling the story? And for Hair, which I would say doesn't have a ton of story to link it together, at least uh, at least on the page, um, I, it, it's organized and it's kind of an organized chaos. So it doesn't even have really like an organizing principle. I think that is super easy to glob onto. Um, I started this with like just the big idea of like, okay, well, like revolution, like it's trying to revolutionize the American musical, the American theater, American culture, and really investigate all of the things that that comprises. So in some ways that, that feels like a galvanizing factor, um, because it's also talking about hippie culture and the counterculture and that need for revolution. So that, that was where I started, but I thought there was a very interesting quote from Joseph Papp who ran the public um, that talked about why he found the show so amazing and worth producing was uh, it being all about the isolation of youth and how they individually feel so isolated and as a community, they feel isolated and unheard by their elders and that, that, I mean, I, he calls it the isolation of youth. That was his phrase. And I thought that was a great summary of all of those things. So I think that may trump just the idea of revolution and counterculture and really underscoring revolution. But Annika, what would you say uh, is the reason they're telling this story? What's the reason for Hera's existence? To me, this is actually a fairly simple one, but I will also say I... Hair was the first show that I ever worked on professionally. I worked on the Encores production in 2001 as an intern. And I think this is a show that's a lot easier to understand on its feet than it is in the script. Um, so for me, it's it's one of the best and most effective anti-war musicals. I think that that is ultimately the takeaway of the show. Your heart breaks for not specifically this character necessarily because you never really get to know anybody so well that you have a real understanding of all of the facets of their life but just that this young person who is in the midst of all of these other young people who are figuring out who they are and learning who they want to be and f flirting with all these different ideas of sexuality and religion and Shakespeare and all this different stuff that they're just kind of messing around with in the way that young people are, um, is killed. Is His life is extinguished. And at the end of the show, I think that is really what you're left with, just the 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 sorrow of a life that has been missed, not necessarily ended, but that this person who was going to be any one of a number of different things that is like thrown at you on this stage is no longer in existence for reasons that seem completely foolish and arbitrary and ultimately not worth the cost of his life. So that is a lot of words to say. I think it is a very effective anti-war message. Yeah, I mean, of course, yes, definitely. It, it definitely has the anti-war piece. Um, I mean, that is part of what the counterculture that the hippies were revolting against is is the Vietnam War and the horrible uh, atrocities of war that seemed flagrantly on display for the first time for a lot of people with the advent of television and mass media and all that. So that's definitely, yeah. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the roots of hair. We can never go back to before. LOL, roots. 
what you did there. I try to be funny. Um, Let me see what I can do. Okay. <laughs> That's the sound of everybody in the world turning their podcast. <laughs> okay, we're good. We don't need this one. Well, this is an interesting show to talk about the history of. Again, usually when I'm doing this section, I'm talking about the source material, talking about the history, talking about uh, hundreds of years of mythological versions of something or something like that. And this, similar to A Chorus Line, is something that really was of its time in a very real way and came to life in a very organic way. So it doesn't really have um, inspiration in the same way that a lot of the shows we talk about have inspiration. It is not based on anything. It is not an adaptation of anything really. Um, but at the same time, it is very much made out of the time and the things that were happening surrounding it. So basically it started when two actors, James Rado and Jerome Ragney, uh, were both in a show called Hang Down, your head and die which was an off-broadway flop and they just became really good friends this was in 1964 and they were similar to the characters they ended up writing and then performing so james rado played claude ultimately in hair and he was more of a pensive romantic with a more classical acting background he was studying with strasbourg he was a little bit more of a serious actor um and jerome ragney was uh, someone who was very much like Berger, who he ended up playing in the show. He was an extrovert. He was sort of a creature. He was wild. He was very much from a style of theater that was uh, happening in the 60s, which was um, this kind of fringe experimental theater. He specifically was part of a theater called the Open Theater, but it was one of many groups that did this kind of thing. And they were doing experimental theater techniques, um, a lot of improvisational games, a lot of interacting with the audience, breaking the fourth wall, switching roles, really kind of breaking the formal boundaries of what theater was, um, taking it away from this very formalized you are on stage playing a part and I am in the audience and I were not interacting in a, in a meaningful way. So he was from this particular background and they just basically decided that they wanted to write this show together. And of course, keep in mind, this is 1964. So happening around them is the Vietnam War, um, which obviously was a huge, huge factor in culture and especially for two young men because the draft was a very real thing. Um, this was something happening all around them. This was something that was very much influencing everything. Uh, civil rights was everywhere. That was happening. That was all. I mean, this is that this is a famous time in American history where all of this stuff was just in a big, huge pressure cooker. The hippies were starting to gather in the park. This this whole counterculture thing was happening. I mean, there were so many things around and influencing them and playing into these uh, this show that they were ultimately gonna write that um, even though there's nothing specifically that they're basing it on, there's like all of this stuff. So they decided that they wanted to take some of that stuff and take some of the be-ins, take some of the hippies, take some of the people they had met, the characters, um, 
of these people who had come to the parks, who were living on the street, the kids who were being kicked out of school, who had grown their hair long, like all of these different things, they decided to turn into a show. So they wanted to capture that experience. So Jerome Ragney runs into Joseph Papp on a train back from Yale. Uh, and Joseph Papp was obviously the founder of the public theater and was in the midst of launching the actual indoor space that we now know as the public theater. Uh, and he said that he was working on a show uh, with James Rado, this, you know, kind of hippie creation musical that they were crafting. And he showed some pages to Pap, who was relatively interested and said, well, send me some more pages. And uh, as he was getting it and starting to read and look into it, it was like, oh, this is very much like what we want to produce at the public. It's contemporary American theater that's bold and speaking to the moment and I think it should open the public, which everyone thought was absolutely insane. Uh, and he insisted that um, artistic director Gerald Friedman direct the production uh, because he it was very scattered and all over the place. And he had a lot of experience in musicals, much more than um, Joe Papp did. But uh, he insisted they get an actual composer to turn what they had been uh, writing uh, these songs that he thought were terrible into actual music, which they they which is how uh, Galt McDermott got involved in the project. So he was Galt McDermott was definitely not a hippie. He um, was very square, very kind of uh, very different than the other two creators of the show. But he sat down at the piano and played this idea he had for the opening for the Age of Aquarius, and he played it for Joseph Papp, who thought it was wonderful and was like go away keep writing yes that's your that's your thing so rehearsals were kind of nuts um you've got all these very experimental artists trying to create a musical in the same way that they would create an experimental production which did not did not coexist well with um jerry friedman who is much more used to a traditional musical development process so there were there were lots of tension throughout um and at one point, basically, they had done all these exercises and things, and they'd come in one day and have inspiration, or they found a new person, and they wanted to use this song they found, or whatever. And um, Gerald Freeman finally said, stop, you can't keep doing this. This is not how you create a musical. Why don't you all go to the park? I'm going to stay here and decide what the show is going to be. So they did, and he took scissors and paste, and he literally cut and paste together what we now know as the, as the base for the musical that is Hair. I say that because in every production of Hair, there are changes and ebbs and flows, and it is one of those shows that is very much tailored around the tribe that is on stage. That is what the ensemble of actors in Hair is referred to as the tribe. Uh, and each production has its own weird, I say weird, but specific and unique elements to it that make it the piece that it is. So ultimately, these tensions with Friedman really boiled over, and they fired him from the project. Um, he actually turned in his resignation. He was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I can't do it. And the choreographer, uh, Anna Sokolow, took over, um, who the authors thought was capable of directing the show as well as choreographing it. And they loved the very modern dance movement kind of style that she found to uh, illustrate the characters and the emotions, and they thought that that would carry through. Uh, Joseph Papp then saw a run-through of her direction of the show, and it was an absolute mess, and so he <laughs> brought Jerry Friedman back in to uh, to make the final touches. And so it opened at the public and was a complete 
monstrous hit. I mean, they had no idea what to do, particularly because they were a new company. They really had no precedent or understanding of extending a show or delaying the arrival of the next show that they were supposed to be doing, you know, yada, yada, yada. So it ran for eight weeks and then was just kind of going to disappear into the oblivion. It was too radical for Broadway. There wasn't another venue that they thought would really work for it. And getting money for that was all over the place until um, Michael Butler, who was a huge fan of the show, uh, came and said, I will put up the money. Uh, and they transferred it to the Cheetah, which was a club, I think is probably the best way to describe it, that had a um, performance space in it. Uh, but it really did not succeed there. Uh, they had changed the show to fit the new space, and they weren't really getting a new audience to the Cheetah to see the show. It was just the people who were at the Cheetah, and they didn't seem to respond to the show so much. So they made the bold decision to try and take the show to Broadway. And, and the important thing to know before the show arrived on Broadway is that it changed quite substantially from its production of the public to then what happened at the Cheetah um, to then what happened on Broadway. They ditched Jerry Friedman along the way uh, and got Tom O'Horgan to direct the piece. And he was a uh, very, very involved in the downtown experimental theater scene and really crafted uh, a new version of hair that had more of the experimental elements in it with more songs, more things, uh, and that, that original public production serving as a foundation, but really Tom O'Horgan took it to another level in terms of how uh, experimental it was and how different it was than from traditional Broadway fare. Um, so I, I think it's important just to kind of know that even the original production and its journey to Broadway, it morphed quite substantially and that you know as i said each now major production is different in how it uh, handles the material but they did have a little bit of trouble finding the show a home on broadway both the nederlanders and the schuberts thought the show was too controversial and said no we won't allow it on any of our stages and so michael butler used a family connection to get to the owner of the biltmore theater uh, which it then took residence in the biltmore theater and opened on uh, Broadway, and it's hard to understate how different a piece it was from the standard fare of Broadway at the time. Yeah, it certainly was very different from anything that was on Broadway at the time. I mean, when you're thinking about the shows that were running, it's Hello, Dolly, it's Man of La Mancha, it's Funny Girl, Fiddler on the Roof. I mean, this is a totally different species of show. And it's fair to say, I think, even though it was a hit on Broadway, absolutely, um, and the album was a massive success, uh, it was not necessarily something that Broadway embraced totally. There was a bit of a kerfuffle with the Tonys because they had been told that if they opened by a certain time, they would be eligible for the Tonys in 1968. But then the date changed, so they were not actually eligible for the Tonys that year and had to compete with the next season, um, which of course is a huge disadvantage because at that point, you've been running a long time, other shows have opened, it's, it's just a long time to to be remembered. And so they really didn't win that many Tonys at all. Uh, they were competing against 1776 and 1776 took most of the Tonys. Um, they only got two nominations in 1969, Best Musical, Best Direction of a Musical for Tom O'Horgan, the director, and um, they didn't win either. So, 
And then subsequently, uh, there have been several performances, international performances, which, which I'll talk about in a second. And then most notably a big Broadway revival that started out actually at the Delacorte again, which was the public theater's first home um, and transferred to Broadway directed by Diane Paulus um, and starring Jonathan Groff and then Gavin Creel and Will Swenson as Berger in both incarnations. That one was also critically acclaimed and a hit. And ironically enough, that one also was not a huge hit at the Tonys. It got a lot more nominations, but only one best revival of a musical. So even though it is a celebrated part of the musical theater canon and history, uh, Hair as a show has only ever won one Tony Award, which is for best revival of a musical in 2009, which is kind of an interesting thing. It is kind of one of those shows, like in general, Broadway has not embraced hair as much as the public has embraced hair. And I don't mean the public like the public theater. I just mean the public at large. I mean, there it is even like when you read Broadway history books and things like hair in so many of them gets like a little like paragraph. Oh, yeah. And, and it's like, oh, yeah. And hair happened and it was very different. And then like nothing like no follow up because it is. I mean, it definitely lays the groundwork for a ton of other shows that follow it, but it was like way pre its time in, in so many ways. Yeah. And it's also, I will say, when you look at it, it is one of those sort of interesting ones to look at because there's something about it that feels like it's absolutely unable to be duplicated in any way. It's kind of unique in a way that does make it feel like it exists in its own sort of world of shows. Um, the other thing too, so it, they they did make a movie adaptation about a decade after um, the original Broadway production that uh, very much uh, I would I don't want to say it's a loose adaptation of the musical, but it definitely relies on and tells the plot story of Hair more than the uh, experimental uh, theatrical nature of the piece, and uh, I, it, the movie was not hugely successful. I think it's pretty. Um, pretty uh universally critiqued i think that's fair although fun fact starring as the waspy boyfriend of the main female character is my uncle miles chapin so oh. shout out to miles well i mean there are a ton of interesting people who make their way through the show too i mean i i learned that diane keaton was in the original tribe and is even on the cast recording she sings um black boys which she's like the lead vocalist of black boys which is kind of crazy but there are i mean there are tons of huge broadway names who like i don't know that they got their start in hair but they were like members of the tribe originally yeah the, it's a really interesting list including meatloaf which i thought was kind of fun um the other thing that i love so one of the things that hair is also famous for is that at the end of the first act some of the cast, not all of the cast, but a lot of the cast gets nude in this sort of be in this psychedelic number that as the end of the first act and it's kind of misty lighting and there's full nudity on stage, which of course was quite shocking at the time. Um, it was inspired by something they had all seen in the park where nudity was seen as a sort of throwing off of the, you know, social mores, et cetera, whatever. Anyway, um, what I love is that when Hair the Musical started to have international productions, which it did, of course, because it was a, a huge groundbreaking thing and people loved it, uh, there was a great list of the ways that different countries responded to the nudity. 
So uh, this is what they said, quote unquote. The French cast was the nudist of the foreign groups, while the London cast, quote unquote, found nudity the hardest to achieve. The Swedish cast was reluctant to disrobe, but in Copenhagen, the tribe thought the nudity too tame and decided to walk naked up and down the aisle during the show's prelude. In some early performances, the Germans played their scene behind a big sheet labeled censored. So I just love that you get this sort of anthropological glimpse into how all these different cultures see the nudity in hair. Well, even though in the United States, when the show toured and had like life here, there were there are like two Supreme Court cases that that involve hair about censorship and what can be on a stage versus what can't be on a stage and all that. So it does it 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 is groundbreaking in many ways, but literally also in terms of law groundbreaking and actually proving a point of the show which is that it is more upsetting to people to see a naked body on stage than it is to think of hundreds of thousands of young people going off to be killed in a war that they don't necessarily believe in which is a good point so with that annika why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside manchester england what's All right, so let's dive into Manchester, England, which is Claude's first song um, and one of his big songs in the first act. So already when we're dealing with hair, we're dealing with a show that doesn't quite operate in a normal musical theater way because it has all of these different styles of song, um, rock, pop, funk, a little bit country. Uh, it's definitely pulling from a popular vernacular, but all different kind of popular songs, which actually really nicely reflects the tribe itself. The tribe is not one thing. The tribe is a big mishmash. They would be listening to this kind of music. They would be coming from different parts of the country. Um, but it doesn't mean that the songs are what we usually consider musical th theater songs to be, which is containing a lot of plot and a lot of storytelling in the music itself. It's sort of the, the songs operate a little bit further outside uh, the storytelling than we would usually expect. Um, which of course we've seen before in different shows like Cabaret, but this one is an special example. And, and obviously this, it's this first rock show. So the fact that it's speaking the popular musical language of the time is part of what helps the show achieve its goals. So this song, Manchester, England, um, has a little bit of both. It does do a little bit of musical storytelling because obviously you have Galt McDermott writing all the songs. So it does have some of that um, musical theater composer storytelling in the music. Whereas if you had like a band who was writing all the music, you might not get that. Um, so this one has a little bit of that. And as I said, uh, this is the first song by Claude. It's really the introduction to Claude, um, who is our protagonist. He hasn't spoken a word up until this point, and it's not really clear whether he's actually appeared on stage. Um, you could probably do this show with him included in the whole group from the very beginning. Um, you could also do it where he makes an entrance right before this song to kind of increase the specialness of him suddenly appearing, being different 
uh, someone we're supposed to paying, be paying attention to. But it's not even close to the first song. It's actually the sixth song in the show. And at this point, we've been introduced to the tribe with Aquarius. We've been introduced to Berger, who sings Donna. We've met Woof. We've met Hud. We've heard songs about drugs, about sex, about racism. There's already been a lot of stuff happening. So we haven't gotten that kind of usual musical theater, like, here's the setting, here's where we are, and then here's an I want song to introduce the protagonist. Uh, there really is no I want song in this show, except for, I don't know, you could maybe say Donna is an I want song, although it's obviously about a character and or a religion that never comes up again. So, um, and again, this is a show where that kind of chaos, that kind of messiness is definitely part of what the show is. It's sort of an element of it. So it's fitting that there are so many things that fit into this kind of, you know, grab bag of different stuff. But this song is certainly the first time a song has actually been about a character in a meaningful way. Berger sang about finding Donna, um, a 16 year old virgin who is possibly the Virgin Mary. So it's either about a real girl or about um, finding religion. Um, the other character songs were about drugs, astrology, even the racist stereotypes that are leveled at them. Claude's song is a portrait of himself, sometimes even in the third person. So it feels different. It, it's a different kind of song than the other ones. The song is presenting him as someone to know more about and to be more interested in. So we're naturally going to follow this character a little bit more closely and care about him a little bit more than the other members of the tribe who we have met. Um, so again, even though Hare is not following a standard musical structure, it's doing something else to, making sh to make sure that we are putting our attention and our emotional attention with the right character. So that by the end of the show, when Claude dies, um, we feel that more heavily. And that really is a process that begins right here. And of course, just to make a comment about the framework of the song, because, you know, obviously we don't have a sort of normal plot situation with this show uh you don't really need any background these guys are just singing about whatever they want to sing about um claude just appears and this is the first song he sings um when hair was written the beatles were already international superstars and the so-called british invasion was underway so british culture especially from working class areas like manchester and liverpool was huge um, Claude is not actually English, which we learn right before he starts singing the song. He's from Flushing. So we know that this is all an affectation, but it doesn't really matter. All right, so let's dive in. I'm listening to the original cast recording, the famous and celebrated and successful original cast recording. Um, and I suggest you do too. All right, so right off the bat, this is fun. It's got that kind of funky groove. You've got that little bass riff. It's a fun beat. It's guitars. It sounds like a pop rock song, but it's also sort of chill and laid back. You already want to spend more time here. And this is a very, this riff um, that we're going to hear throughout the song is kind of very familiar from songs, actually a little bit later than this show. Um, it sounds a little bit like the groove in uh, Sunshine Day, which the Brady Bunch sings later. It sounds a little bit like Sesame Street. It's got that kind of like that building uh, bass line that kind of goes up slowly and then loops back around. Dun, 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 dun. It's like that. Manchester, England, England. Across the Atlantic Sea And I'm a genius, genius I believe in God And I believe that God 
So it's hard to break apart this first section because it all kind of strings along and builds on itself. There's only one actual sentence here. Um, it's mostly these phrases that just give us a little bit more each time and in some ways loop around and sometimes undercut what he's just said. So he says, Manchester, England, England, across the Atlantic Sea. Okay, that's, that's pretty clear. Um, and I'm a genius genius. So that feels like a sort of general introductory statement. You know, he's got this repetition of England, England, um, and then genius, genius, but saying I'm a genius, genius just feels like on its own, a statement of narcissism, of egotism, but then putting, I believe in God with that big high, you know, big high note for God flips it around and seems to say that he's saying, I'm a genius because I believe in God, which is different from saying that he's a genius, right? If you're just saying, I'm a genius, you're saying something about yourself. If you're saying, I'm a genius, I believe in God, you're saying that you are good for doing something. It's a slightly softening. And obviously, in this case, it would make him the opposite of a narcissist because he was um, believing in God, something higher than himself. But then he flips that back around when he says he believes that God believes in Claude. Um, and he's so clever to put those God and Claude on the same notes. So he's kind of placing himself right next to God. Um, and then he emphasizes it with, and that's him, that's me. You know, he pulls it right down to that button, of like, yep, and that's me. So he's actually doing this kind of scampy, clever thing where you think he's being a narcissist, then you think he's not being a narcissist, you think he's being religious, and then it comes back around to being a narcissist again, and also sort of blasphemous by, by equating himself with the level of God, which we know is not cool for religious people. Um, and then pulling it back down to that sort of clever, like, that's me, you know. Um, already we know that Claude is smart because he's playing all these twisty word games and, and the music is doing that with us. And playful. It's really fun to be hearing him go through these little clever games, basically. And it's it's charming. There's something so charming about being in his presence. He's entertaining. Um, he's certainly cocky, but in a really fun way. We we like him, even though we also think that he's he's one of those, you know, teenage boys who's just thinks the sun shines on their face. And that can get old. But in this moment, we're just getting that youth, that charm, um, that intelligence, and especially that sort of energy. Claude Hooper Bukowski finds that it's groovy to hide in a movie, pretends he's Fellini and Antonioni, and also his countryman Roman Polanski, all rolled into one. And so here we have the second section of the song, um, not a standard song section. We kind of get the first part. This is sort of, I guess it would be a sort of bridge, but there's only really these two sections of the song. And even though the, the song is, the melody here is different, it's also quite fun. And it's fun in a different way. It's, it's doing even more of what he did in the first section, even more loop-de-loop -loop of these kind of fun verbal games. And this time the music is actually swirling around a bit with the lyrics, as opposed to the first section where he's just equating himself with God. He's just paralleling it, basically. Here he's looping it. Um, and it starts out with Claude Hooper Bukowski. And he, he gets he puts that in its own phrase. He puts that on its own little pedestal. There's air on either side of it. Um, 
as though it's a portrait of himself. He wants you to hear his name in the clear, which again goes back to that little bit of ego that, that is just pervasive in this song. And then he tells us this fact about himself. He likes to hide in the movies because of course they're all rebels, right? Anti-establishment. He's paying one ticket and staying there all day, presumably. Um, and then he pretends he's artsy filmmakers. Um, Antonioni, Fellini, and Roman Polanski, and just a note, this was before Roman Polanski was known for primarily being a rapist. Um, at this point, he was just a cool British filmmaker. So there's there's no sort of dark, weird subtext there at this point. So he's telling us that he's smart, which we knew from the first section, um, but also artsy, intellectual. These references are not just um, your everyday things. This is He's cool, right? He's into culture. He likes these filmmakers that maybe you you don't know that well. They're a little bit um, on the fringe of things. They're artsy, they're art scene. And he's just having so much fun with the language here that even if he wasn't telling us that he was into these filmmakers, uh, he would we would know that from the language fun. He's building these musical loops with Fellini and Antonioni. You can hear him enjoying the rhythm of those names and just kind of rolling them through. And once he's done with that rapid fire section, he makes her sure that we hear all rolled into one, just like he made us hear his name and then punctuates it with his name again. So he's done kind of a similar thing that he's done in the first section, which is um, the first section, he doesn't introduce it with himself, but the introduction to the song is kind of set, like telling us about him. Um, so here he's done the same thing. He's kind of looped it back around, bringing it back to himself with a button about who he is. And then that, that charming little, that's me, right? It's, it's kind of coy almost. It's charming and cocky. Um, and again, he's that golden boy who gets away with a lot because you just can't not love him. It's just fun to be with him. And you know that. Now that I've dropped out. That, so that's a really interesting little tiny plot drop here. And the song is really rolling with this funky riff that we have going, but we're we're being told something here that is going to be a little bit useful for us later, which is that he's dropped out now that I've dropped out. And it's not a, it's not a big deal in the song, but it's just dropped in there. Um, if he's dropped out of school, it's going to make him eligible for the draft, which of course he's going to be soon. Why is life dreary, dreary? Answer my weary query. And then we get this, oh, it's such a teenager thing to say, oh, life is dreary, dreary, everything's so boring, you know, answer my query. Oh, I'm so weary, like that sort of blase, like nothing is exciting enough for him. Um, he just wants to watch foreign films, you know, and we get that repetition, which has been a hallmark of the song, uh, dreary, dreary. And another reference to a cultural figure, Timothy Leary was a psychologist um, who was very famous for advocating for psychedelic drugs. So um, another person who is sort of an intellectual reference, which we don't get a lot of from the other people that we hear about. Um, but it's just, it's such an interesting sort of fun position of power that he's putting himself in, right? He's demanding that Timothy Leary answer his, his question about why is he, so so dreary right um everything's so dreary he's just so bored because again you know if there's one thing that the show keeps emphasizing about all these characters they're just they're young they're teenagers they've got a lot of energy they've got a lot of uh, faith in their own ability to do everything um they haven't suffered a ton of consequences yet for anything um 
And this is a perfect example of this with Claude, right? If you contrast the Claude that's in this song with the Claude that will be at the end of the show, where we're gonna hear a little bit about this song again, and it's gonna be, it's gonna be a little bit haunting there, the refrain of Manchester, England, because what it's gonna sound like later when he's dying in a war is the innocence of this uh, fallacy that he is perpetuating you know this this dream he has of oh he's not really a kid from Flushing who goes to high school he's he's an artistic intellectual who from Manchester England he's exotic and and he's just bored because the world isn't giving him enough and you know he believes in God and he believes that God believes in him you know there's there's something so innocent as much as he's pretending to be an older person pretending to be an adult pretending to be knowledgeable and having lived through a lot he really hasn't lived through anything yet and of course by the end of the show he will have his life extinguished and so you will feel very heavily that he will not have any life to live after that that this energy this spark in this kid is going to be extinguished. And that's ultimately the tragedy of the show. But um, we're getting a lot of that here of why we should care about that, especially because this bright light in this fun, fun song, who's so fun to be around is not going to exist anymore. So let's finish out the song here a little bit more. such a fun song so obviously here we have a repeat of the first section but he's kind of having everyone sing along everyone's singing along with him it gives a sense of how claude fits into the group you can tell that they love him and that there's something about him that has been designated um one of the leaders of the group Berger is definitely the one who's more the leader of the group but they're happy to do what claude tells him and they're happy to sing that's him back at him, which is kind of supporting that fa fact that he's something a little bit special, right? They, they're happy to spotlight him. He's happy to spotlight him. And he's a little bit different from the others, as we've heard, um, bringing all these cultural references, movies, directors. Um, it's just, a, a, he's a different kind of person necessarily. And clearly all of these people have a lot going on. Um, we just don't get insight into all of them in the same way we do with Claude. And so, in this song, which is super fun, probably the most fun song in the show up until this point, um, it's just joy. What we get is joy. The joy of Claude, the fun of being with him, and the loss that it's going to be when we lose him. And that brings us to how do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues that affect the show, both internal and external to it. So for hair, there are many, many, many things that we could open up as controversial issues about hair, about, you know, any, I mean, any number of things we could talk about. I feel having read it and thinking about it and its place in Broadway history and, and you know, I kept having the question of like, does this show work? Does it work on the page? Does it work on stage? Does it work in a contemporary context? I mean, there the revival, the Broadway revival a decade ago, 
one of the reviews was like, oh, hair feels more daring than ever 40 years after its premiere. I think I, I think I call a little bit of BS on that. I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, but I do think that the aims of the show to be bold and different and daring, like, I do think that there is something about the show that I think does transcend the very specific moment in which it was written and the very specific cultural moment it was trying to speak to. I do think that there is something about that that transcends, but I'm not sure that... I'm not sure that the overall piece is nearly as effective as it was 50 years ago when it premiered. So, Annika, I'm just going to pose the question, does hair work? And I will say, with the caveat that this has got to be one of the weirdest scripts of a Broadway show in the canon, because it is a very deeply weird script, um, I do think it does work. And I think it's a good example of why I don't like to, as a dramaturg, give a set of rules, quote unquote, for what makes a musical work or not work. Because to me, this is a good example of something that breaks a lot of the structural rules of musicals. Like, are all of these songs advancing the plot or the characters? Not necessarily. You could probably cut a bunch of these songs and have no discernible difference or replace them with something else that was kind of equally out there and atmospheric or interesting or weird. Um, you know, does it have some of the more basic structural stuff? Do we learn a lot about our protagonist? Not really. We kind of like skirt over a lot of stuff. We just touch back in with him. So by the hair of its chinny chin chin, I think. Because I think there's definitely a way in which you move it slightly to this side, you move it slightly to this side, you adjust this, you adjust that, it would fall apart and be a huge disaster. But I do feel like when you see it, the chaos of it and the impracticality of it and the rule breakingness of it and the mess of it actually ultimately works to serve the overarching story that they're telling, which they managed to check in with just enough that you don't totally lose track of it. Although you can lose track of it when you're reading the script. And there's definitely always a lot of stuff where I'm like, oh, wait, this happens? That happens? Why are we doing this then? Well, it almost feels like a collection of sketches at a certain point. It does just kind of feel like, I don't want to say Brechtian, but it does kind of feel like that weird... Yeah. I, I, say, I say weird, but just the not traditional narrative theater that is going for a visceral response for its audience and it's not necessarily interested in telling a story. So I think that's kind of part of it. Yeah, there's a lot of it that feels quite episodic. Um, I sort of found myself oddly enough thinking about the musical Cats as well because it, it has a little bit of that sort of presentational, let's meet this person, now you're hearing this number, which doesn't really have to do with the plot. Now let's go over here and do this thing. You know, it, it has a little bit of that energy, even though I, I would say in Hair, the, the spine of the overarching story is a little bit clearer and more driving um, than the one with Cats, which is about a Jellicle Ball and uh, whatever. Um, yeah, so there's a, it reminded me of that and it reminds me a little bit of Chorus Line because it has that similar feeling of like, it. It's, it's a little bit of a superstructure rather than a um, like an internal structure, which is a, a different thing. But 
it's an it's a super odd one and the whole second act is basically this this trip and there's so much in it with the whole i mean i completely forgot about the whole american history politics um thing that they do that whole like skit that happens then it's so interesting and weird and dark and there's so much like interesting race stuff in it and interesting religious stuff in it and then you're like hearing hamlet and it's just i mean it 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 is a portrait it does feel like a portrait of probably what it felt like to be in these hippie tribes of these young people who were just high a lot of the time and figuring out stuff and in that sort of teenage way when you're grabbing on to things and feeling really intensely about it and then just kind of moving on to something else it's a it's a very particular atmosphere so i think ultimately yes it does manage to to it does work but very close to not working i think so because uh, i will say i love when i was a teenager i loved hair and that was i was a teenager around the time of the revival and I absolutely was like all about hair, 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 hair. Like I'm singing all the songs, love all of it. Um, also had a little bit of a crush on Gavin Creel. Um, spotters will note that clearly I have a type. Um, so <laughs> if it can be played by Gavin Creel slash Jonathan Groff, Michael, <laughs> maybe a Claude, basically. Right. So a brooding, a brooding protagonist, someone with a Hamlet complex. Anyway, moving on. Um, so, uh, no, but as a, so as a teenager, I loved it. I it was all the things like I think that's why I particularly was so struck with the um, Joseph Papp uh, isolation of youth idea because I do think it is so clearly speaking to a different generation of theater goer audience, uh, whatever. Um, but all of that almost leads me to thinking like actually it doesn't work as entertaining as it might be. Like sure, it does it works in an entertainment kind of way and that it's it but part of me wants to make just make the argument that like it doesn't work like if we were to stage hair today i don't quite know why we would do it other than to highlight something about our current culture which i do think is going through a very similar moment to what america was going through 50 years ago at this time i do think that there is like a millennial version of hair that could be written today or a gen z version of hair frankly um for as much as millennials get a lot of grief from um older generations i think collectively right now gen z is really taking up a lot i don't want to say a lot of oxygen but they are taking up a very similar a similar segment of culture that is very much driving conversation as hippies did um 50 years ago now hippies were a, a subgroup they were not an entire generation but i think there is something generational about it that is interesting to me and that does feel as much as you know the hippies were about um their combined culture and the counterculture and and the tribe and all of that there is a very individual aspect to each of their experiences that seems honored by the counterculture and i think we are very much experiencing a similar thing in the midst of a very similar social upheaval that um absolutely is happening right now so in some ways like if we were to watch hair or do hair right now in 2020 part of me would be like yes, this is great and entertaining. And I like a lot of these numbers and I like the score and whatnot. 
couldn't we just tell or do a very similar um, visceral experience that is actually speaking to this moment instead of a moment 50 years ago? Like it, it, in some ways, the show has almost like aged out of its relevance on a certain level. I hate, I hate to make that argument because I don't necessarily agree, but I do like what it aims to do, it can no longer do. So why not let a new generation create a new version of it, I guess is kind of the argument I would make. I think that's a totally fair argument. And I think you you bring up a lot of good points. I mean, as we said, this definitely arose from a big issue in the 60s, which is that young people were being shipped off to the Vietnam War and being killed. And that is not something that is happening today. Uh, even in the same way, even slightly. And I mean, that's not a relevant force. I think, I think what I would say to your, to that argument is what you're saying speaks to one of the tricky things about this show, which is that if you're going to do the show today, I think if you do it in a way that connects to the energy of being that age and as joe pap said the isolation of youth and that hunger you have to live life but that sort of innocence you ultimately have about what life is going to actually contain um and the frustration of being at an age where you still can't control your own destiny in the, in a way, even though it feels like you can, um, if you're going to tap into that, um, and just the sort of touchstone, the quicksilver center of um, what it means to be an individual versus society, like the, the things that are in here. Um, then I think it will be relevant if you do it. And I was thinking when I was reading it, God, I, I never want to see hair done by like a high school where everybody's in terrible wigs with like big, like f daisy flowers written on their cheeks, because I think the, the, the trap of this show now is because it is so much about hippies. You cannot, you, you have to do the show tapping into the authenticity of what that experience was. And I think that this is a show thing that this show does actually very well because it was written by two people who were so much inside it that they didn't even know what it was as a thing. You know, it was coming from such an organic, true place inside this movement that it's not a portrait of the movement it, from outside. It is this kind of true thing if you do it as a period piece now as a sort of like this is what the hippies were weren't they crazy then it will it will feel like old as time i think because you're right that will be awful because this will this will descend into parody so quickly if you have a cast that doesn't understand what those people were really going through we're just thinking of like oh and then we'll live in the park and we'll all make out with each other and we'll do drugs you know it's it's you have to live the truth of it and it is a show that kind of amazingly avoids self-reflection in, in a really interesting way that i think if they had a little bit more more self-reflection about the movement it would not work as well 
I think I know what you mean. I mean, because it, it, it would be so easy for it to feel like a museum piece and to say like, I hear is a portrait of life. Hopefully. And I think it's kind of, frankly, because it spoke to the moment so much, I think in the grander, larger scheme of musical theater history, that's how it's discussed. Instead of the revolutionary call to action that it was, or that the hippie movement was, uh, the rebuttal to culture that it represented. And I think you're right to tap into that authenticity makes the show feel fresh and alive. And that is like what the the parts that we were discussing, the visceral excitement of the score and, and that does exist within it and why it does kind of work. But reading it and thinking about it, it is so easy to just fall into the specificity of the material and the well they're actually responding to this particular thing and this particular thing meant that as opposed to the overarching comment that like this what we're all working toward is not working and that like mm -hmm. we this more the critique it, that the hippies were leveraging on society and on culture that um has become parody on a certain level like it just I mean, hippie is now a Halloween costume. That's not really, we don't think of it as, except for like, oh, let me smoke my joint and like peace and love, free, like all the things that we can easily joke about the hippie movement because uh, they were so predictable on a certain level um, or just caricatured so easily um, with the, the flowers and the John Lennon of it all and, you know, that kind of imagine the world, you know, whatever. But that there is this um, political bent to it. It is. And I found myself when I was reading it thinking that it's interesting to think about what a production would look like now, because that revival was not too long ago, but 2009 is a very different time. And this show deals a lot with race and sexuality and part of what was revolutionary about it was that it was especially for the time a very diverse cast and so you had black actors singing a song like colored spade which is a sort of uh critique of racism that is full of racist terms obviously that is what the song is but because you have a black actor singing it about himself it's kind of it was a sort of a statement of power instead of something that was where you saw black actors at the time which was like playing a servant on stage you know it was actually very empowering to sing this song which is about racism which was also something that was not really overtly addressed very much on a broadway stage but now we're in a very different political climate in terms of what is acceptable um, and you have to be very careful with things like this and i do think that this script has a lot of that stuff like i think i actually think a song like colored spade would probably be okay because it still has that sort of reclaiming of these terminologies but there is other stuff in this that i think would not be so okay and finding the line of these children of the 60s grappling with these issues in a real way for the 60s is very different from from it what what it would look like i think now and it's it's funny as you were saying that about having a contemporary version of this show dealing with contemporary issues 
it's very interesting to think of like the thing that that unites shows like this that are speaking of a specific experience at a specific time is there is a great deal of authenticity arising from who is writing this particular thing and it is often someone who is so inside that community that they can speak with a degree of just reality realism that somebody who's outside of that community can never quite get and that's what you see with hair that's what you see with rent um even that's what you see with like lynn miranda and writing in these vernaculars of hip-hop and rap and this world that he is so effortlessly a language he speaks i i'm wondering who is going to write the musical that you're talking about where it is speaking to contemporary issues by someone who's so inside that Ooh, who I would say that that musical is about to happen and it's going to happen on TikTok. And we just, I mean, like, it is that like kind of group think thing that like we, I, it's not Ratatouille the musical. And I, I do was not going to say, is it Ratatouille the musical? I do not want to talk about Ratatouille the musical, <laughs> but I do think that there is a, um, a collective sense of collaboration and adding on and everyone has their own individual thing they bring to it that like the grocery store musical and the various like things that have happened. I do think that that is the seed that to me is the grassroots from whatever a contemporary piece, like, you know, a contemporary equivalent would come from is that kind of a grassroots movement almost that they, that, uh, you know, honestly, may have missed this opportunity like probably should have been on broadway in like 2019 because that i mean it's it it is so what i because thinking about this show and what you were just saying like it is one like a declaration of freedom right it is like a and it and it is a celebration of life it is like there is something going back and watching that revival thinking about the 2009 landscape we had just elected our first black president like in some ways like you know the contemporary equivalent to protesting vietnam is protesting like the iraq war like that is the that's the and we're all in afghanistan and our our use of military force around the world which is now so like not a part of our current discourse even though we are still very actively at war <laughs> um and still very actively deployed we've just kind of put it into a different box but there is something about it to me that like yeah the version of hair that works like there is I didn't see other than on video, the revival, but like let the sun sign in feels like a celebration on a certain level. And like hair feels like a celebration of freedom. It doesn't necessarily feel like a protest to like be in people's face. And there is like an agitprop nature to hair that could be very meaningful and very visceral and challenging the norm. And then there's one element of it that could be, the celebration of freedom. I think there are like almost two different shows within it that in 1968 combined to be this a magnificent piece of theater that um, now are just have translated into being different things. And so, you know, where a production falls, I'm not entirely sure, but but yeah, it's kind of what led me to be like, well, I think it did its thing 50 years ago. And now it, it would ask that you pick up the mantle and make your own new thing that speaks to this moment. No, no, I think, I mean, it reminds me of something that, that one of my grad school professors said, which is to do Brecht without reimagining Brecht is to betray Brecht, like to do Brecht in a sort of like straight across the line, like exactly as it as it would have been done then is actually to completely be. And I think what you're saying is sort of the same thing. Like 
in some ways the spirit of a show like this is not to simply do it as a period piece it's actually to harness the energy that this show is honoring and make something that speaks to the youth of today in a real way although it is interesting to me side note to see that um, in addition to sort of breaking the like structural rules of musical theater that hair does it also broke a lot of the rules in terms of like what we talked about with the experimental theater forms of like there's people who come out of the audience there's nudity on stage there's breaking the fourth wall some of his director dress the end they all come you know they invite you to come up and dance there's also like the breaking of the theater rules and those are elements that we are seeing again right now a lot you know a lot of breaking the fourth wall a lot of kind of like immersive theater experiences so it is interesting to see that sort of thing happen again but i do think that you're right which to say that it will probably burble up somewhere like TikTok because a lot of this is completely unpredictable you can't really see where the new thing that's going to break the rules is going to come from because if we could see that then we would be making it already you know it's like we can well it's like it's like TikTok is is there is is for that generation I, I say the generation below me, I consider myself to be a millennial. I am not, but like, that's their safe space. TikTok is their safe space that they don't feel like other generations understand in the way they do. That is a place where creation is, has been democratized to a generation. And like, sure, it has, a, there are ways to game the algorithm and, and things that you can use to your advantage. But ultimately, it's a platform where a 14 year old can have just as much power as Reese Witherspoon or any, you know, Lizzo, any Cardi B, any, I don't think Cardi B has a TikTok, but like the, the, it, it is a, it is a recentering of power that puts their generation squarely in the mix of the power structure, which it, it feels like it, it belongs to them. And so other generations being on it is almost like a betray like it's like oh you it's almost like a, they don't want to be a part of it it's a fascinating thing but it it, it just it, it's been on my mind when thinking about hair yeah no i think i think that's a really good point and i think you're right because you, you have to be inside that generation and that that method of communication to actually understand what it means to those people like if I wrote a TikTok musical, it would doubtless not be authentic to those who were inside it. Because to me, it would be a sort of like anthropological expedition into like studying this interesting thing, which is, you know, exactly anathema to what those movements are. Especially young people can just sniff out inauthenticity so fast. Like you have to be real to such a degree that it's interesting to think that what what the next thing that's going to feel really real to young people in musical theater is going to be. And that means it's time for our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things about hair. So Annika, who's your favorite character in hair? And I and I will qualify before saying I think it's really hard to differentiate a lot of the characters in hair for as much as I tease myself about chorus line. It's very difficult for me to remember names of almost anyone in uh in hair but so who's your who's your favorite character in hair Annika? well i'm gonna go with a slightly unusual choice and i'm gonna say genie okay yeah you have to remind me who genie is okay. well yes part of the tricky thing is i think since none of these characters get a ton of 
backstory or shading the like a lot of it depends on who you've seen play those parts so i will say genie is the pregnant one she is the one who sings the slightly strange song air and she's the one who has a crush on claude but i think that she kind of acts as a sort of emotional she's kind of the secret heart of the show in many ways because even though sheila is sort of the more prominent female character Jeannie is capable of kind of seeing what's going on with Claude specifically in a way that just grounds everything in in a true way. And I think that when she says to Claude the thing about whatever decision you make, um, you're still a good person. That really is a is a key moment in the show, and I think uh, a key character for both Claude and for us. So whenever Jeannie comes on stage, I'm always just happy to see her. That's great. See, and, I, and I, like I said, it's hard for me to remember who everyone is kind of because um, I, I, I've thought about I, Chrissy, I guess, um, who I think is very authentically kind of the spirit of the show. Um, but also, um, I, I really on the reread, I found Wolf so charming and lovable. And um, he's kind of I mean, I, I think you said like he can kind of go either way in terms of cute or pervy. He's very um uh, definitely overtly sexual and uh, very much fluid in his sexuality, I think, uh, were, but definitely gay. Um, I mean, I guess not definitely gay, but very, uh, I just found him very charming and funny as I reread the script. And I was like, oh, he's the, I'm kind of tracking him this last time through as who I was. I was going to say Wolf too. That was definitely another candidate. I think you're right. He's, he's really fun. It's interesting. The one that neither of us said, because I did think about Claude, but neither of us said burger and i think that's interesting because i think that really depends on the actor playing burger because you can have a burger who is magnetic and like that definitely 100 percent that guy who's like the leader of the group kind of an asshole super sexy you would definitely go to home with him even though you definitely would regret it at some point but then you would probably do it again <laughs> like he's like the male sally Bowles, kind of <laughs> like he does have this like magnetism about him that i think on the page it doesn't read nearly i was like oh this guy's i i on the reread i was like oh yeah. god yeah so what's your favorite song in the very very full score of hair oh this is such a good score and it's funny um i've noticed with this score that the the there are so many numbers that get stuck in your head although the ones that seem to get stuck in your head the most are the ones that you cannot say out loud on the subway <laughs> she says from experience having worked on it and then like wanting to hum either colored spade or sodomy or black boys um but i'm gonna say i got life that's super fair. Yeah, I think that's my favorite. I I just, I mean, because the, the runner-up was going to be the Black Boys, White Boys sequence, which I just think is so fun and I love it. So full of so many great, I mean, Aquarius is obviously a great song. Yep. Good Morning Starshine. Uh, Let the Sunshine In is Let amazing. the Sunshine In is a great number. I mean, it's full yeah. hair. The title number is a great song. Yeah. But even some of the weird ones, like 3500 is an odd and fascinating number. I mean, it's... Easy to be hard is a good number. You yeah. Know, it's full of them. Mm-hmm. Frank Mills, I mean, yeah. So what's your favorite? 
So my favorite is, I believe it is officially titled Ain't Got No Reprise, but it's when the song turns into a protest. And I really love that. I love how it builds. I love... I, I just I, it's like maybe all of a minute and 15 seconds maybe it's like 90 seconds but I absolutely love it and I get it that's like my favorite track to listen to on the album yeah okay what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about hair uh at the risk of uh being the person who always goes to the darkest moment which let me just say this has taught me a lot about myself doing this podcast because every time i have my favorite moment it's like when somebody is killed or dies and it's sad uh, which is not what i normally go for but um i will say that i do think that the ending of the show and the choice to have claude simply uh transition from being there to being there but invisible um the way that they handle his going to war and being killed um and not being with his friends anymore is so brilliantly done because in a show that has a lot of surreal stuff where you're like what's is this really happening what's really going on it's like this trip it's a whole thing um that sequence is so perfectly clear uh it's it's very, very devastating to watch him um, not not walk off stage and be dead, um, not have his friends hear about it, but to simply have him no longer visible to this tribe of people is devastating. And I've seen I've seen shows do it where uh, he kind of they do this interesting bit of theater theater magic where he's there and then they walk in front of him and then he's it's just the coffin and it, it always is truly really pa- like a painful sad moment it really really lands and um it's what you end up taking away from the show and then you have let this the sunshine in and just this kind of it just brings home the tragedy of this kind of death um and uh it's very effectively done so i'm gonna say the the sort of clawed actually going off to war slash death sequence. That's great. I mean, mine is kind of the total opposite in that <laughs> um, I love the the two Tony performances of the revival. One, because they end the opening kind of medley with Let the Sunshine In, and it's all these people on stage, like, jumping up and down saying Let the Sunshine In, and it's very, very uh, fulfilling and hopeful and happy, and it made my heart very warm uh, recently. It always does, but when I went back i i loved it and also their performance of the title number which is our actual tony performance and just like watching all these like crazy performers go out into the aisles of these you know they're also tony nominated but all the like people in their fine tuxes and evening gowns and the and like edie falco not having any of it like, <laughs> like please don't and like you know edie falco like death glaring like please do not ask me to get up out of the seat and dance with you and then you've got like anna hathaway who's like yeah i'm gonna live my hippie life like i just i think it's a really fun i mean the kinetic energy of hair is just in general that's my favorite thing about it and those tony performances are great are great examples of that energy yeah and i have to say that revival was so good i saw it at the delacorte and on broadway and they just totally nailed the energy of it all and it just felt completely right and that brings us to corner of the sky gotta find my corner of the sky 
where we talk about the show's place in the musical theater canon. So, I mean, there are any number of things that we we could call Hair's Corner of the Sky. I think everyone would agree that it is the closest thing to a pure, authentic rock pop sound that Broadway has achieved up to that point and maybe since i mean we could make some cases for other shows having that sound and really um but this one does transcend into top 40 in a way that broadway really hasn't since um as successful as other musicals and their albums have been this has a number of successful like singles which is kind of un not it's kind of unheard of uh for broadway so there is that element of it that i think uh is obviously at play and many history books will note that but um i think also just the larger kind of success of a con of a true concept musical that really doesn't have ton a ton of book or a ton of story holding this the an evening together i mean it is like the the dawn of the age of the concept musical. We want to keep making jokes um, in this episode, but that is like, you know, kind of its most important place, I would say. Don't you think, Annika? I mean, where would you, where would you put this show's corner? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. There's a lot, and that's definitely the most obvious one. It is considered the first and the kind of the biggest rock musical um, on Broadway. Uh, and that's certainly true. I mean, I think a lot of people know these songs and would not even know they were from a musical at all, um, which feels like it's unusual considering the other songs that have become popular out of musicals are still very much tied to the musicals they're from. Um, I would say the other thing is just, you know, the introduction of some of those experimental theater techniques into a Broadway show you know, I think it proved that you can have a hit Broadway show that has a lot of rule breaking, both inside the show and in terms of like the way it's done, everything from the nudity to the audience participation. Um, it just was kind of across the board proving that rules are sometimes meant to be broken and that there's a lot of space on Broadway for different kinds of theater. Yeah, I think that's huge. Absolutely. It is definitely a um, genre busting show. And yeah. the traditional Broadway fair like changes that definition, or at least expands that definition, I think. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Well, that about wraps it up for our deep dive into hair. But before we go, Annika has, a, has to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? So Annika, what is our clue for the next musical we'll be putting in the spotlight? For our next episode, we're going to talk about a big classic show that had no curtain call in its original production. Because the author of the show, who was also the director, felt that the show dealt with such serious issues that he wanted to simply leave the audience with those issues. I mean, it makes sense. It tracks on a certain level, I think. Yeah. So you'll have to tune back in in two weeks for the season finale of In the Spotlight, where we will dive in to that classic musical. So until then, bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.
This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. This podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit goodspeed.org. See you next time.